Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is probably best known for his tenure at Treyarch on some of the Call of Duty games such as Warzone, Cold War, Black Ops 4 and World War 2. I'd like to welcome the one and only Jack Burrows. How you doing? Good, good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no problem. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask was about your actual first day there because you did a 12-hour shift, if I recall correctly. Followed by a two-hour commute. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. My very my very first gig, uh, September. It was actually on 9-11 in 2017. What? was my first day of work. Yeah. Just to, like, really add a, a bad omen to it. So my very first day, I went to the Activision head office first. And they sort of did, like, an orientation. Because I was an Activision employee initially. Right. And they, uh, so they, you know, walked us around had some orientation stuff and then they bust or we i had to drive over to the el segundo office which is all in southern california it's all in the la county area uh, i had to drive to activision hq at like 8 a.m and then drive over to the el segundo office and then i just had like orientation for maybe like five hours and then work for the rest of that first day and they were like all right like that's a little taste of your first day and it did take me an hour to get from where i lived to those offices and then an hour home because I have to cut straight through downtown LA. So it's like, it's literally the worst traffic on the planet every day, twice a day. And yeah, it was 12 hour shifts from the, from the very first day. It was a 12 hour shift for the next six months. <laughs> wow. Okay. So yeah. how did you maintain your sanity? Well, it was crazy, man. At the time I had actually just gone through a breakup as well. And I think I had like a stomach ulcer. So I had this like triple threat. I was like emotionally heartbroken, physically ill and then like starting my career all in one swoop. And I'll tell you, only for the grace of God did I survive. Like it was it was a gauntlet. And I'm blessed to say that was probably the hardest time of my life. Um, but it was gnarly. Yeah, I was I was driving totally on pure passion for the craft. And I was like, is this is this what it's going to take? Like, this is the road. All right. And I, I mean, I cried on the way home. I was, you know, like I, I still live at home now just because the art school I went to is so ludicrously expensive. God bless mom and dad for letting me still live at home with them. So, I mean, I just, it was brutal, man. Like driving an hour there and back, I was like, this is, this is terrible. And on top of that, working for a publisher as QA is very different from working for a studio for QA. You're still testing the game and everything and you're doing like functionality stuff, but you're very, very far from the action itself. Like where the game is being made is not where I was which was a hard thing to realize. So um, it was interesting, man. But yeah, that was <laughs> it was uh, quite an entrance for me uh, into the real real world of the industry after college. So do a lot of your peers or a lot of your peers at the time, were they doing similar things in terms of that level of hours followed by a crazy commute? Some were. Some few were. Um, I was, that would, you know, what spices up any post-college life experience is comparison. And I had friends that were my best friends in college who were programmers and artists who were already working for like EA or like big VR companies. And they were literally making so much money. I had to tell other friends, like, do not tell me how much money they make. I don't want to know because I was making like 1250 an hour. So with all that I was doing, I was like, I don't need to know. I don't need fuel to compare myself. Um, but some of them were, I had one or two friends that went through the same kind of grind uh, that I did. And I met some of the best friends of my life sitting next to me in those trenches. So it's not everybody's road, but it was definitely my road. And a lot of the like 
it's amazing how much upper leadership in studios and publishers went through the QA road and most of them can share or relate to some extent for what I had, what I went through. Yeah, because that's one of the cool things I, I suppose about Activision, right? I mean, people tend to focus on the, the leadership side of it, but it's a good way of honing your skills, right? And moving up the ranks in terms of uh, Absolutely. gaining that experience as a developer. Yeah, no, I mean, you in QA, like, you are so hands-on with the game every day and you have to look at what you're playing through such a specific lens. You know, it's like you can't just be playing like you would if you were sitting at home on your couch. Like, your job is to have an understanding of what the game is supposed to be and recognize when it's not being that. So when certain systems break down, like you have to note that you have to write up a bug that that's happening and you have to articulate that bug accurately and with detail so that the developers can actually fix it or else they'll just send it back to you as a QA person and be like, what the heck is wrong here? Like, I don't understand what the problem is. So it's it's a tedious job, man, for sure. And it's a, it's so important. It's like fundamental to games coming out with quality. It's honestly like astonishing how many games because, you know, like in the old days, before they had day one patches, like games came out and they were done. They were yeah, finished. That's right. There was no fixing them. So if I have it bad now when we have like patches and stuff like that, like heaven only knows what people used to go through. I mean, they told me like some of my bosses were working in QA back when they literally wrote bugs on pen and paper. Like you would write down in a notebook what the bugs were and had to like submit them. I mean, it was ancient times. I got there with none of that stuff, but they told me horror stories for sure. So, you know, with QA, how do you know what you're looking for? Because you don't know what you don't know. So you kind of have to know what you're looking for in terms of it being a bug. To a degree, yeah. Yeah. Because some of of it would be just testing out the game, and then some of it you'd go looking for specific things. Is that how it is? Yeah. We would do, so with Call of Duty, with Call World World War II, we did a lot of, like, group tests. So sometimes... um, We'd have to all work together to join a server at the same time. And there were certain bugs. Like if you, if somebody jumped in the lobby, it would crash everybody. It would crash the server. Like, so you would, you would, yeah. Sometimes we would know that there were certain bugs happening from the developers and they just wanted to get more data on how frequently it was happening, how um, easily it could be triggered, stuff like that. So we would have to work together sometimes to do things. But yeah, I mean, to a degree, you need to have an understanding of games in the first place because if you're going to be effective as QA, I mean, it's literally quality assurance, right? You're testing so that the consumer experience is polished. So you have to play it with the expectations that a consumer would have. So when you're seeing things happen, there is a degree to which you do have to kind of put yourself on like your home couch, right? In the living room setting and being like, oh man, I would be pissed if this happened when I just paid $60 for this game. So as QA, like you're catching that stuff way ahead of time. So would you be alternating between, say, maybe QAing for the PS version and then the Windows version and then the Xbox version? Is that is that how it would work? Or would you stick to one platform that you'd test for? So I think different QA offices and um, teams would probably do it in different ways. Uh, for me, we did have days where we would sort of test primarily on PS4. We'd have to set up a bunch of Xbox kits um, we didn't really test PC in my office too often. There were other teams. Activision has huge QA teams um, that work very, very hard to make the games polished. And so some of those divisions might prioritize like PC. We mostly did PS4 and Xbox One at the time that I did it. 
Um, but yeah, sometimes there's certain bugs that'll only happen on one console or another because the architecture of them uh, of the console itself works with the game differently. It's bizarre, man. It, it can be so tedious. It's crazy. Like some of the like bugs that we discovered, it just makes you scratch your head. Like, how is this? How is this even possible? It's fun. It's fun, but it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you transition into becoming more of a level designer? I mean, did you advocate for that? Did one of your superiors be like, hey, Jack, it's oh, yeah. your time? No, it was hard, man. It was a long road. And it was very um, self-made, but also a lot of great people that poured into me. So I um, I was always vocal about it. I was like, I don't want to do this forever. I'm. This is a stepping stone for me. But in no way does that mean I don't respect what I have to do here. Um, so you have to, you'd have to kind of balance that, right? Like you can't walk into a place and be like, Hey, you know, I'm just here to get out of here. It's like, <laughs> you got to show up, you got to earn the right to speak. Like you got to earn the right to be respected, you know, like you got to do the job and I did the job well. And you make relationships with people and you're like, you know, they're like, you know, what are you doing here? What do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to go and be a designer. And they'd be like, Oh man, like you got to get out of here. Like, you know, I had people that were very loving and kind to me and we're like you got to go to the studio if you want to do that and they helped me get in like they made the connections with me for me and so i got into treyarch after six months of being in the activision testing office and that's when i started testing for black ops 4 and it was kind of the same gig i had like maybe i think four weeks of normal hours and then immediately they had a big meeting with all the qa testers in the studio and they were like all right you guys know what, what time it is like we have to turn this on and so i i did treyarch qa um, for I think about the first six months, I was a specialist tester. And what I would do on my breaks is I would work in the Radiant engine. So I spent my own money on Black Ops 3 to get the mod tools. And I would install Steam and the mod tools on my work PC. And on our breaks, I would be in Radiant learning, watching YouTube tutorials. And my boss, my QA lead, walked around the cubicles and he, he caught me doing it. He was like, what are you doing? He's like, you should be on break. And I was, he's like, why do you have this up? And I said, because I don't want to be a tester forever. I want to be a designer. And he walked away. He was like, mm, okay. And he left. And two weeks later, he told me, um, we're going to move you into your own office for QA because the level design team needs specific in-house testers to work with them directly. So that's going to be you because you obviously have, you care about level design. I was like, all right, like, that's awesome. That was the first huge step. Um, his name was Tom was my boss and he and I like butted heads initially when I got in there. And, um, by the end of it, he was totally my advocate. So at every turn I had people that helped me out and, um, yeah, so I built a relationship with the level designers in that little office by myself. Cause I was working directly with them now as a tester, I wasn't just doing sort of general testing. And so, um, what happened is that an internship opportunity came up in the studio, which you usually have to be a student for in college, which I was clearly not. So I would walk to the uh, recruiter's office in the studio and be like, hey, I know I don't fit the bill necessarily for some of the criteria, but like I got a portfolio, I got a college degree in game design, like I want this um, and I just want to know what I have to do or what the expectations are. So I found had relationships with folks. I would take some of the level designers out to lunch just over our in, in company sort of communications like Slack and stuff like that. I'd be like, hey, I'm a tester, but I really care about this internship like can, can I just have lunch with you and ask some questions? Um, so a lot of it was like my own initiative mixed with people that recognized it, you know, that I was very lucky that they saw it. They were like, this kid wants this. And, uh, and they took a chance on me. So they, they let me apply. And I was one of 17 interns for 2019 at Treyarch 
out of like 6,400 applicants or something. So like, it was, wow. it was pretty great. It was crazy, man. It was a very, very emotional time because uh, I made it out and they accepted me as an intern and then they hired me after the internship, which ended in August of 2019. And I got hired full time and I became a level designer for Treyarch. So it was, it was an odyssey <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> that is the coolest story. Yeah. That is so it was awesome. great. Yeah. So was it, I mean, you'd studied it, but was it still a bit overwhelming when you first took on the mantle and trying to design levels? Because it is yeah, very I, much a fine art. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, it was, to be honest with you, I've always loved game mechanics and systems design, um, but I don't have an ounce of a mind for programming at all or scripting. I've tried and I just suck at it, but I love game design so much. So level design to me was the avenue where I could get into a studio and still affect the player experience in a very primary way, right? Because I'm literally building the spaces where people are running around. So that was sort of the goal that I had. I was like, I just want to affect the player experience. Like I want to be involved in designing what the player goes through moment to moment. And level design was not to be insulting, but to, it was easier for me. Cause I, you know, some people might code better than they have an understanding of architecture so they can go that route. That wasn't my route. So I went the level design route. Like I can work with geometry. I can work with buildings and shapes and spaces and stuff. Like I play enough games that I understand how a player would expect to move through a space depending on the genre. So that was sort of an approach, an avenue that seemed viable to me. Um, but yeah, when I got into it, like it was scary. It was stressful. And uh, my internship worked where I had the first half was working on the traditional 6v6 Call of Duty like multiplayer, um, you know, like the smaller maps where it's a lot more intense, lots more frequent. And then the second half was working with Warzone. So I had mentors that were sort of teaching me about much bigger, broader sort of 360 combat. You can get shot from anywhere at any time. And it was very different. So I got super stressed out trying the 6v6 stuff. And I was like, this ain't for me. Like this, I, that's the mode I play more. But trying to design for it was extremely intimidating. It was hard, man. Like the problems that arise, it's insane. Like having to calculate how long it takes for both teams to reach an initial engagement in your map and like facilitate the sight lines so that that feels good. It's fair. It's fun. It was extremely difficult. So I got overwhelmed and I was like, let me try Warzone. And it was like complete freedom. It was wide open. They obviously still had like guidelines and intentionality to the design, but it was like, whatever, man, like go for it. If that's the, have a crazy idea. If, as long as you can make it work and make it make sense, like have at it. So the freedom of doing Warzone level design was like extremely freeing, liberating, refreshing. So I made that sort of my bread and butter. And I love games like Skyrim and stuff like that anyway and Fallout. So that's kind of open world vibe uh, just settled well with me. And it was exciting working on uh, the Verdansk season, I think it was season six edits, as well as some of the tail end of the Blackout stuff. Because that was like the beginning of Call of Duty entering that kind of space, right? It's like, yeah. that was very exciting time. And being a tester on Black Ops 4, when they were making Blackout, like we got to watch how they iterated through that process. It was super exciting, man, because COD had never done that before. So yes, it was intimidating, but also very exciting and very fun. So you know with Warzone, because you did uh, a lot of the uh, the downtown terrain, right? The the And what oh, was yeah. it? The stadium terrain. That's yeah. right. I, that was me. I designed but, that. Yeah, but were you assigned that, or is that something you opted to do? No, and I was. I was trusted with that. I would say so. I 
I sort of built up a skill for designing um, what we call POIs, like a destination, right? So like, if you think about those different locations like Scrapyard or the airport or something like that, like somebody is generally assigned that space and they design sort of the bulk of the gameplay. And I got pretty good at doing that for other destinations. So when it came time, they were like, we have to blow up downtown and stadium. Uh, Burroughs, take point. And I was like, right on. Like, I love it. So that was super exciting. Um, but I worked intimately with a bulk, a swath of other tester uh, or uh, designers. Like I, we had a terrain specialist named John Wheeler. He's my boy. He, he was my one of my best friends I met at Treyarch and extremely good, brilliant level designer, brilliant with terrain. So I worked closely with him to like decide what was even possible. Um, but yeah, essentially I got assigned that location and the stadium and I had to make them interconnect, had to decide like which buildings were going to knock down and had to make it make sense uh, in sort of the context of the story, the narrative that they were trying to to throw into Verdance to sort of breathe some life into it. So do you brainstorm that sort of stuff on paper or, or within an engine first? Like how do you go about doing that? Or is it all so just in your head and you just put it down? <laughs> yeah. Some people do roll like that. Yeah, they do. <laughs> um, yeah, I think every level designer, even with studios that have sort of a universal way of doing it in the studio, like a studio might have a process or a procedure that they go through um, to make spaces. But I know most individual level designers will approach a space pretty differently. So I think it's a combination of all those things. Like we generally had to create sort of a paper prototype and present it to say, here's my idea. Here's sort of the key points. Here's some of the references of what it, um, I think the space could look like by the end of it. And you basically have to take a 3D concept, translate that two-dimensionally, and then pitch it to people as if it will someday become a three-dimensional space. How do you do so that? You, you just like, you make a blueprint, basically. You make right. like a top-down right. blueprint and say like, Here's where I'm thinking these things will go. This is some of the spatial relationships. Here's where the roads would cut through, stuff like that, some of the major paths. And if that gets approved, if that gets checked off, you're good. Now you start blocking it out. Um, that's how we did it, at least. Some people, like you said, they get the assignment, they're already in the engine. They're already putting blocks down, trying to get a feel for the space. I think bottom line for every designer, though, it has to be extremely mentally visualized, um, at least for me. like I, I'm super in my head about the things like I want to create an experience, right? Like a fantasy. So I, you have to think, what is the theme of this space? What is it trying to be? And what kind of experience can I give a player? That's going to be fun. We're basically making playgrounds, right? Like we're making a space for people to run around and shoot each other. So you got to think like, what's going to be fun to hide behind. What's going to be fun to run and jump off of like, you know, what's this ledge I can jump off of and deploy my parachute and then cut it and shoot this guy and, you know, slide into this tunnel or something. It's like all that kind of stuff, I think starts out mentally and then you put it to paper and then you have to polish that paper design and then you go in the engine. That's generally how I do it, but some people might differ. But how do you decide how much of the terrain, for example, is, is destructible? How much of it gets destroyed and how much of it doesn't? Yeah, so for specifically the season six stuff, my approach to it, um, well, it's part of it came down that like, they looked at the space and they were like, hey, we want it to blow up in this way. So I had to think like, okay, given the explosives that they're using planted in these kinds of positions, I think the terrain would do this. And if the terrain is doing that, you know, it created sort of those fissures that tore like tunnels and 
like so it made like a canyon through the downtown connecting all the way to the stadium if it was going to do that then in my mind i was like i would expect the buildings to sort of cave into and onto it um and so you just have to kind of think like how much is it going to be reasonable like how much of the downtown are they expecting me to destroy so it's a dance right it's a lot of communication so i would pitch something they'd give me feedback I'd come back with a presentation. They'd be like, yeah, that's great. Do more of this. I would add more of that. They'd be like, that's too much. Dial it back and be like, okay, you know, I'm also going to try this. Like it's a whole ballet of me as a designer, the creator presenting an idea for what it could be. And then I get feedback from higher ups and from coworkers. We tweak it. We polish it. We start to block it out. Hey, this feels good. Let's do more of this from here to there. Stuff like that. It's a total dance. It's very, very iterative. I'll say. And you work in tandem with the artists, with the scripters, right? It's it's a one big collaboration? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, game development, unless you're like a prodigy, like the guy that made uh, Stardew Valley or something, like people that make games on their own, like I can't even re- begin to wrap my head around their talent. Like that's so Im- extremely impressive. So I, I love AAA design and AAA game development because you do, you work with people every day, right? Yeah. Like every single day you're arm in arm with people like building something, making something. So I get to leverage their skills and my skills. So we would work daily with the artists and they would um, help us to decide like this, if this is the time period and this is what is physically happening in this space, then this is how this kind of building material would react. And like, they give us all that kind of data, right? Like that's, I'm not always the one like doing that level of research, but the artists do. So we worked a lot with concept artists and they'll help us do like red lines over a space to be like, Hey, I think this building would make more sense if it did this in reaction to what you're trying to do here. It's complicated, man. Like it's, it's super tedious and complicated. And to have artists that are thinking about the way the space will look and feel when you're going through it at like beyond gameplay, right? Like I'm thinking about gameplay and what it, what it'll play like. They're also thinking about what it'll feel like when you go through that space, like how believable is it was sort of a, a big staple of what we built. It's like believability is a huge factor because it, it helps to sell the the mythos. It helps to make players feel that much more immersed. If the artists are doing their job and they're kicking ass, like it doesn't matter how crazy a space I design, they're the ones that are going to make it, that are really going to sell it, right? Like the artists take it and they take it all the way home. So yeah, we, we worked with them in every part of the process. Do they uh, pitch ideas to you though about stuff in regards to level design or is that like people just stay in their lane and that's that's as far as it goes sure i i was often taught that level designers are sort of the guardians of gameplay um and and it's true now and in my current job and previous jobs like design wise like we sort of have to protect uh elements of the gameplay because artists um at times can get over enthusiastic about how a space should look or some of the, how detailed some of the meshes and models can be in a space. And like sometimes, you know, you make a, the edges of a building or something too complicated artistically, it's going to affect sight lines, basically. So it's going to make like a very cheap little narrow spot for someone to shoot somebody else through. And gameplay wise, like that sucks. So you have to like sort of balance that like, hey, I love what you're doing. We have to like round this off and you know make it more vertical so that it's read more readable for the players like so that they can't take advantage of what you're trying to do so the artists have to like sort of dial back what they want to do from time to time as well as the level designers have to sort of build things to facilitate that what the artists are going to follow us and do if that makes sense yeah is that easier said than done though because creatives tend to be quite 
Extremely so. Extremely sensitive in regards yeah. to what they do, you know. And some can't, can't take some can't take criticism. I'm sure you yes. can. Though. No, I think I think that is a massive entry requirement to even work in these kinds of studios is you got to be able to take feedback. Like if you were to cry and get like morbidly upset and offended every time someone critiqued your work, like you couldn't work in a big studio. Like you won't survive for your own sake and for other people being like, dude, it's not about you. It's about what you made. It's about the work itself. And you have to kill your babies. You have to detach from the thing that you've made so that the final product can be better and which can be hard, right? Like that can be a total dance and everybody feels that way. Like nobody loves their work getting torn apart. I had my boss, one of my first boss, when I was an intern, I made a design and he was like, yeah, this is boring. And I was like, Oh, but, and I was like standing up there presenting with a notepad and in my gut, I was like, Oh man, that hurt. But in, in the moment I'm like professional, right? I'm like, okay, why, you know, like what, what elements are boring? Like what isn't connecting? Like, and you have to sort of dance with that. And I, I didn't really take it to heart. I was like, yeah, I see what he's talking about. But if you maintain that level of professionalism, which everybody does for the most part, in my experience, at least at Treyarch, best, some of the best people I've ever worked with in my life are in that studio. All of them. Like everybody I interacted with in my day-to-day and stuff, like I love those folks. They know what they're doing. So if I had feedback, if I got feedback, everybody knows the drill. Do they teach you that in, in college though? Do they teach you that you need to learn that skill or that ability? College, college for me, yes. SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design, nailed that. They absolutely prepared me for that. I had professor. frankly, my professors made it sound way worse than it actually ever ended up being. <laughs> like they over-prepared me so that I was like, I walked out of college with extremely thick skin, like unnecessarily so, where to the point where I actually had to learn to be more gentle in how I gave feedback. So some of the initial feedback that I would get from like a yearly review of people like working with me, because, you know, you get peer reviews, like people will anonymously with the manager sort of be like, this is what I think about this person. And everybody gets it right. It's, it's even table. It's not like one person's getting all of it and no one's saying anything about everybody else. We all had to sort of share how we give feedback for things. And um, some of the feedback that I would get is like, Jack is a little too harsh, a little too sharp. Um, doesn't seem like it seems like you can tell when he doesn't really respect a person by the way he critiques their work. And I was like, Oh my God, like I got to reel this in, man. Like, you know, cause college we got destroyed. <laughs> like we would get shredded if our stuff wasn't good. Not that they were abusive, but it was just, they were giving us a very real sort of brutalized representation of like, if a client is paying you money to do a job and they don't like what you're doing, you have to recognize it yourself. You want to recognize it before the client recognizes it, right? Like you learn how to sell everything that you do. You have to. And part of that is when someone doesn't like what you made. And SCAD, like from the beginning to the end, just taught me how to do that. So like the very first class I had was like a speech and debate class. Very first class. So we get up there and you have to give a speech and the teacher is like, you got to make eye contact. You can't say, um, you know, every other word, like you got to be on time, like yada, yada, yada. Like there's just a level of professionalism. I think that SCAD equipped me with going into the industry where I was like, I'm ready to go. You know, I feel strapped, but, um, outside of that, it was, uh, no, I think I was just very fortunate that college, my college happened to prepare me well. I don't know that everybody's does, you know, a lot of people come out of the modding community and stuff like that. So who knows? Yeah. So what was the experience like going into Cold War? Yeah, going into Cold War, um, 
I had already had a really good experience working with the level design team being an intern. So they sort of uh, built me up to their customs, their processes, their procedures. And my first like professional work in the industry as a designer that actually made it into a game was in Cold War. So Cold War had these like fire team dirty bomb modes, which are sort of like bigger than the sort of traditional 6v6. And all of the initial work that I did in the industry is in the Ruka map, which is like the forest. So like, that was my, that's my heart, man. My heart lives in that map. Like that was my first stuff, you know, as a designer. Um, and it was great. So I, I knew how to work with the team. I knew how to use the tools and everything. So yeah, it felt pretty smooth going into it. That was a great project. What was the hardest part, do you think? I think making things that will never see the light of day was pretty damn hard. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of stuff gets cut in game development. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. across the board. I think, yeah, yeah, I don't in know, any game. Yeah, and I think that, and that was my first time, right? That was, well, I did work on projects in college that totally nosedived and crashed and burned. So I had a little bit of preparation for it, um, but it was tough because I was really proud of some of the stuff that I made. And I would get like, I had compliments from like David Vonderhaar directly complimented something that I had submitted. And I was like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Like the man himself specifically said one of my buildings was great. And I was like, that's it. I've done it. I've made it. And, uh, but that's, that stuff never made it in. So, you know, I was bummed. That was hard for sure. Apart from that, it was a blast. When stuff gets cut, is it mostly due to time constraints or is it just because it just doesn't work within the game for whatever reason or it's superseded by something else that's even better? In my experience, more than anything, stuff gets cut or changed because it doesn't gel with the final vision of the product. Um, things that people are trying out or um, certain elements just aren't, connecting well with the rest of the game excuse me so you end up i think just having to take stuff to the chopping block and be like what is going to best facilitate the vision for this game and what is holding that back and i think it's less so about time constraints i think time constraints usually rush things where stuff will be less polished but i think it's less about like we got to cut this because we don't have time it's usually like we got to cut this because it's not working and we've spent too much time already on it. So we can't continue to experiment to see if we can make it work. That's kind of my perspective on it. Yeah. Um, you're probably aware of the whole thing with Activision being sold and Microsoft and Sony and all that stuff. But does that actually affect any of the day-to-day -day, uh, operations for any of the developers or are they just like, yeah, whatever, that's that's – heavy level uh, <laughs> heavy level stuff. We're just in the trenches focusing on what we're doing. Yeah. We would daydream about how it would affect the day-to-day. -day. We would think about it and we would talk about it being like, I wonder if this will change or if, you know, if that, like this process won't be like that anymore or if, or if we'll get more freedom to do whatever here and there or stuff like that. But um, it never did. I mean, it hasn't even gone through yet. And right. And I'm, I'm long gone, but even while I was there, not long gone, it was very recent. But while I was there and it still hadn't gone through, we it was no, it didn't for a short answer. <laughs> really didn't affect the day to day. And I imagine had it had it gone through all the way, that Microsoft still probably would have respected what Call of Duty's doing for the most part. Cause I mean, Call of Duty prints money, right? Like oh, that's a bottom oh. that's a bottom line. Yeah. So if Micro if it's doing what they're doing and we're making good dough, I think Microsoft would have been like, Hey, keep it up. Keep keep doing what you're doing. 
I was surprised that that there was never a Call of Duty on Switch. Was that ever considered? Do you know? You know what's funny? I just saw an article. I think that Spill Spill Spencer. My God, my mouth. Phil Spencer wants to set up this like ten year trajectory to get Call of Duty on uh, Nintendo consoles again. Yeah, I just read that. I don't. Have, I don't know anything about that at all. So, I I don't know why that never happened. That that topic probably especially is like high level wafty stuff that I have no idea. I know I feel bad for the people that had to test like Call of Duty World at War on Wii. I think that sounded pretty rough, but I think it was on the Wii U. I think they made Call of Duty Ghosts for the Wii U. I they had wrong. Black Ops 2 and they had Ghosts, I think. I think those were the two games and then they yeah, they didn't do anything for um for Switch. I don't know. Which I, just, I, which I found sh- it I just I've always found that just a bit weird cuz there's like 100 and what <laughs> 14 million people that have a Switch now. Yeah. I think the I would imagine that the hardware would probably have to do a lot of finagling to work with the Call of Duty software. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm assuming that that would be the case. I think maybe Nintendo prefers a more family-friendly live portfolio, but they also have like Witcher 3 on there, so I'm like, I don't really know where that line gets And they had Doom and Doom Eternal as well, so it's kind of like, yeah. I mean, I thought (laughs) possibly it might be file size because Call of Duty games are so massive in size. I don't know how they those games get optimized. Well, I think it the the multiplayer may have added a pretty big factor. I I know they have Splatoon, but I think Nintendo infamously has r- not the most ideal internet connection for multiplayer games, which Call of Duty is right. It's like fundamental to the core thing that everybody plays. Everybody plays a multiplayer, right? That's what they want. So I don't know. That, I love I nice. love how nice you're being about Nintendo's online because it's it's <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty bad compared to the <laughs> PlayStation and Xbox. Uh, but um, I know you're a fan of uh, sci-fi games, right? Like some of your favorite games: Bioshock, Metroid Prime, Dead Space. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did you ever? I mean, this is now, and I suppose previously, did you ever try to consider maybe getting into the studios that make mm. those games? Man, oh man, you know. <sighs> It's funny, like, there's a degree, there's a concept that I learned in college where it's like, your talent doesn't match your taste. So I have, like, I have my own taste in games, and I will self-recognize that my skill level as a creator, as a designer, isn't near that strata of quality. So I don't even know how to make something good enough to reach the quality of those games that I love and respect so much. So I'm what I'm doing actively in my career is trying to set a trajectory, right? So I'm trying to calculate who can I learn from, what software can I learn from that will get me to the point of experience where I'm confident to be like, yeah, I think what I've made is in the wheelhouse of those sorts of games. I mean, those have always been like huge daydreams for sure. Even getting to work on at Treyarch was like, it was surreal for years. It took me years to realize, like, I'm actually literally working at a AAA Call of Duty studio. Like, dude, I played, I remember when my friends came, like, to middle school lunches and would talk about Nazi zombies when World at War came out. And we were all like, dude, what are you talking about? That's crazy. And then we would go and play it for, like, 40 hours over the weekend. And now I work next to the people that made those game modes. Like, that was surreal. So I obviously daydream about it. Like, I would love to work with those teams and those games. Um which I love deeply, but uh, yeah, I think I am just trying to build a respectable portfolio of experience 
so that those devs would look at the things that I've worked on, uh, look at my work history and be like, you know what? I'd want to work with this guy. I trust this guy to come in here and work on these kinds of titles. So it's a work in progress, you know? One of the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about design is it involves being good at a lot of different things, right? You don't really want yeah. to become a master of one. You want to be more jack of all trades. I think what I have understood at this up to this point is if you want to be, you want to be able to wear a lot of hats, primarily in indie development, because there's less people and there's more. There's just the same amount of work to do, right? So the more that a person can do, the better. Not to say. In AAA, uh, you can't also be valued that way, but you are kind of more of a cog in a machine, um, and the quality of that experience can vary from studio to studio. I've been very, very fortunate twice in a row to work in studios that are extremely good communities and cultures where I don't just feel like I'm just, you know, a spinning wheel in, a, in some massive operating machine. Like I have, up to this point so far, felt like I have a real influence on the game a real influence on what the player does. And, um, and that's great. And that is a byproduct of a skill set that is kind of linear right now. Um, but there are things that I'm interested in that I'm, I'm sort of looking to expand out into, which, you know, I, there's just stuff that I would need to learn if I wanted to do that. So I think at the end of the day, like, sure, like it's good to know a lot of other kinds of stuff, but I think it matters what you want. Like, what's the, what's the thing you're trying to do? If I want to work in a big studio, that's making a big project, they're probably not going to have like three open positions for me to fill all of them. And the level of work and the quality of work that they would expect in all those three positions would be overwhelming for me as an individual to fill all that stuff. But as an indie spot, it's like the expectation of what they're trying to achieve might be relatively smaller scope, right? So you could have one person doing three jobs because the expectations of what they have to deliver isn't as extravagant as it might be for something like God of War or Assassin's Creed, right? Like some huge sprawling open space. Um, but yeah, like for example, I'm a level designer and I love game design and stuff and I love system design. So I should probably learn how to use Excel. Like that would probably be a good skill for me to learn. Or, um, I'm really passionate and really interested about, uh, directing voiceovers and characters, like working with actors and how they deliver a performance. Like that has become a deep passion of mine and I have no idea where to even begin. Right. Like I'm, I'm literally going to be on LinkedIn probably the next like handful of months or with my managers and my bosses and being like, Hey, this interests me. Is there any kind of road that I could do both? Like it's just a conversation that you'd have to have, but generally simple answer, more hats, indie development, specialized AAA development. Right. I see. Cause the interesting thing is with game development, it's constantly evolving and quite rapidly as well. And then you've got other things like AI, like these eight, what is it? The AI art generators, which yeah. put off, put out some stuff that, a crazy good you wouldn't be able to tell that it was an ai program that did it does yeah. that does that worry you does that excite you at all you know i think it's it's an interesting sort of frontier right now because there's a ton of controversy and i i like if i was an artist and i had spent like 30 years developing a style that was honored and respected in the community and i like slaved blood sweat and tears to make that look good and some handful of folks making an AI art generator have figured out how to like take my portfolio and implement my style for free. And people are just doing that, making money off of it. Like I understand that would be pretty frustrating. Do I think it's cool that we can do that? Absolutely. The morality of it, I feel like it's going to take time to sort of sort that one out. 
Um, when it comes to design and stuff and procedural generation, I think the handcrafted level remains definitively the ultimate sort of craft um, in terms of level design specifically. So like if you play Half-Life 2 or Dishonored, like the guys that worked on Half-Life to me, especially even like Black Mesa, like those guys are an inspiration. Like the stuff that they have handmade is breathtaking. That is something I aspire to is like level design like that. Like those guys are geniuses. I don't think that we have reached a point where you could get an AI to generate the nuance of that from scratch, right? Like it can't work from scratch. You have to feed it a basic, I don't know, series of principles and things for it to then spit out its own sort of warping of those things. So I think it's fascinating. I think it's probably extremely powerful and it's definitely beyond my full scope of comprehension. Um, I think it has great capacity for good, but as almost anything that humanity does, it has a great capacity for, for bad and for evil uh, and for abuse. So we will see, but I am excited to see where it leads and what people do, um, hopefully to make some really badass stuff. But yeah, I think it's awesome. I played around with mid journey like crazy. And I, I mean, I feel like I made some print worthy stuff, but it's really just the AI. So who knows? It's cool. I think it's cool. But well, dangerous. people don't know you can, you can take credit yeah. for it. <laughs> <laughs> who knows yeah just roll the dice <laughs> yeah so how was it uh training interns because when when you were interned and then you work your way up and then you're training the interns i mean obviously you already mentioned about being pretty hard on them in terms of yeah. criticism <laughs> but um how was that actual experience it was it was awesome it was wonderful from beginning to end um i think it was a tremendous privilege honestly to give to somebody else what was given to me um, to get a bunch of um, contestants is the wrong word applicants to look through and see their work and see their passion and take them seriously. You know, cause when you turn somebody down and you're authentic about it, that's taking that artist or that designer seriously. I'm not just flippantly saying, no, it's like, I, we tried our best to try and like give feedback to folks or to give like a few bullet point reasons why they might not have made it and someone else might have. It's like that, that no can become someone's entire turning point for how they do get into the industry. So when I got to say yes to two extraordinarily talented designers, it was like ecstatic. It was awesome. And they were like super cool guys to work with. They were incredibly skilled at what they did and getting to sort of baby step, walk them through um, how we make things, you know, but also allow them to have their own spin on it. Like that was exciting. It was challenging. It was like, you can't force them to make things a certain exact way, but you can give them metrics and you can give them standards and procedures and see what their imagination does. And I think facilitating that growth was challenging, but very exciting. It was hilarious. Like we worked very hard on building a very elaborate, detailed curriculum, and most of it went out the window. Like at the end of the day, it was like, as a designer, you can kind of just sit down with someone and talk about what you do day to day. And teaching them the tools was the most challenging part, like because it's tedious. Radiant is tricky, and it can be difficult. And anything is like Unreal is tricky, and Maya is tricky, and Unity is hard. Like all these game engines are tough. But once they get that, once they figured out how to make stuff, that was where the fun began. Because you would just see their imagination sort of run with what we taught them, 
And I, you know, we, we could put some of ourselves into each intern. So I was in charge of one intern and my buddy, John Wheeler, I mentioned, he was in charge of another intern, uh, but we worked together because they, they were both going to do the same kind of stuff that we did. So um, it was, it was incredible, man. It was like a huge blessing to give to someone what opportunities and what experience that I had and uh, all from home too. We did the whole thing remote. You know, I did it all in person. So it was hard to sort of try and translate a lot of the thrills and the fun that I had uh, purely over Zoom. But uh, what, both of them live now in LA. I've gotten to meet them in person and take them out to lunch and dinner and stuff. So they're great guys. And yeah, f- from beginning to end, it was a great experience. Would do it again. That's cool, man. That's really, really cool. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, so, you know, um, burnout tends to be a, a big thing in the industry. Did you forewarn them and try to give them tips on how to manage crunch and having no life for a period of time? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I am really proud to say, I'm proud of Treyarch because, and not to say that everybody was crunch free, but when I started as an intern, I left crunch behind completely. Not to say we didn't have hard work and we didn't have close deadlines and stuff like that, but the, there was no, in my experience, in my department, I can't speak for everybody because I know some people suffered and some people worked very hard, but the producers and the scoping and the management of my team and my tasks and my workflow, I never crunched again after I left QA. I really didn't. And I was very happy to not really have to teach my interns how to suffer like that, right? It's like, it's a blessing to not have to tell someone, uh, yeah, you're not going to have a life for like X amount of days that no one really knows when it'll end. Like that would have been super lame. That would have sucked. But I had the privilege to say, no, Treyarch has figured that out, especially in this department. Like, we, we really have not had to crunch. And I owe that entirely to the production staff, to the level design leadership. Like, they just kick ass. And they made it. They made life infinitely better than I had it in QA. Uh, not to say those QA guys didn't have to keep crunching, because I know they did. But at least for level design, like, that was not an element I had to teach my interns. What we did teach them, what I did talk to them about was this element of imposter syndrome um where you i mean you the, once the surrealness kind of blends away and you're like no you're actually working on call of duty like you will work on a triple a call of duty video game and the designs that you make will ex- affect millions of people that are going to play your work like there's a degree of panic where you're like i ain't built for this like there's no way my designs are good enough for this and you have to overcome that you have to overcome comparison to where you're at and where other people are. Cause I mean, there's a threat of pride that comes knocking on your door too, right? Like to see where other people are and where you at or where you are at. And you're like, man, I'm kicking ass. Like, look at these losers. Like that's a temptation too. Like there's all kinds of emotional, mental temptations, not even having to do with the game development itself. It's just like being a person entering a field that you worked hard to get into and being passionate about it and excited about it. Like all that was challenging, but in terms of burnout, I think something, I think the number one killer of of people's passion for games is that they lose the sense of wonder, truly. Because I think my favorite elements of playing games my whole life, start to finish, starting from when I was like six years old, is the sense of wonder. It's like that awe that you get walking into a space or into a scene or into a world or into the shoes of a character that you just love, right? Like we build worlds, man. We build experiences that are impossible everywhere else. Like you don't get this in books. You don't get this in movies. It's different than those things. Those things are great. But games are unique. They're powerful. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. I love what this quote from Todd Howard. He said, we can make anything. We just can't make everything. But the things that we can make, like those things can be phenomenal. 
And I try hard to, in my personal time, in my free time, to actually still play games, right? Like many, many developers do not play games as a hobby. If they do, it's very sparingly. And to me, it's like, you got to know what's hot, right? Like you got to know what's big, what's selling, what's not selling, what's failing, why it failed, how it failed. Like design, like you said, like it's never changing industry. The craft is ever changing. You have to study and play these games and maintain a care for the craft, man, for the quality, for the passion. Like we're creators. We make things. We don't just consume. Like this, there's a mantle that we have stepped into in this career. And I tried to fan that flame in my interns as best I could to try and get them to see what they're doing. Like what you wake up and do every day, what we provide for people out in the world. Like this is one of the best jobs in the world. Like we're literally making fun. You just get to go and be an engineer of somebody's entertainment. Like that is a blessing to get up and do every day. So that maintaining that passion, I think not abusing it, right? Like not treating yourself poorly, not killing yourself at work for too many hours, but the the deep love, the deep joy for this craft, I think is what counters burnout. And that's what I taught my interns. That's what I tried to, to get them to understand as we were working and teaching them how to make Call of Duty. Because even Call of Duty, right? It's like, it's... It's always Call of Duty. Until it stops printing money, we're probably not going to stop making them. And that can get to you. That's a form of burnout. Franchise fatigue. And to a degree, it got to me a little bit. I was like, I, I'm hungry for something different. <laughs> First five years of my career, it's like I'm I'm looking to switch this up a Fair little enough. bit. You know? Yeah. So that's what I tried to teach them. Yeah. You do mention playing games, and I have spoken to a lot of developers that just do not have the time to play games. It's very difficult to fit. I mean, particularly with games that are like massive RPGs or something where you're spending 70 hours plus on a game. Um, So it's really good that you can actually find the time. I have no idea how you managed to do it. um yeah do you plan out your day specifically like okay i'm gonna play a game and on this day at this time for this long no (laughs) no not at all not at all nope i am i mean gosh how do i do it not not to be like oh how do i do it i didn't mean to have that kind of attitude (laughs) i'm i'm trying to think like what is my actual life experience with this um i mean i'm an extrovert man to my core so i really prioritize like spending time with people I like to ride my bike around the Rose Bowl when I can. Like, I think I live a relatively balanced life. I spend a good time with my family. I mean, I'm literally, I still live at home. You know, I'm 27, still live at home. I'm only now starting to like look to a move to sort of gather some life skills that I can't get in my comfort zone. Right. And I've been extremely fortunate to have like a wonderful relationship at home with mom and dad and like watch my brothers go through high school. Like, just awesome. Like, I'm a family man and I, I get to enjoy the fruits of a good family which is a huge blessing. But part of what that does is it gives me the freedom of less overhead, right? Like I don't necessarily have to budget or cook as often or clean as often. It's like, not that I don't do any of those things. I participate, you know, I'm part of the family, but uh, yeah, I, I just have time. I, you know, I manage to go to church every Sunday and ride my bike when I can and work out, see people throughout the week. And you just make time. You make time for what you love. Everybody does, right? They try as best we can to make time for the things that are important to you. And playing games is desperately important to me. It keeps me going. It keeps my my passion up. I want to see what other people are making so that I can make something so good that they want to see what I'm making. That's the goal. And I think I just make sure I carve out time for it. 
you know, and even if it is those big, massive games like Elden Ring or something, if you had 15 minutes, you could still run around, go see something cool. I think people should just commit to those games and accept that you're just going to chip away at it. Like it's a, those are great games. Those big ones, like you want to play the whole Mass Effect trilogy. You want to play Skyrim. Like that's, you just get to enjoy a great thing longer. Right. That's I'm almost envious. Cause if you just binge it, right. You just bum rush it. Like you don't savor it. But if you only have those little windows of time, you're like, oh man, I'm going to come and, you know, chew on this morsel. I'm going to play this one dungeon or whatever. Like, I think that's still a totally viable way to do it. But yeah, I think you just, everyone makes time for the things they love or they don't. Yeah. And I suppose with those games, if you chip away at it, you're very much getting your money's worth. For your... Oh yeah. 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 Considering how much games cost. Uh, yeah. You get a lot of entertainment out of them. Absolutely. How was uh, working on Avon Colony and working under Paul Tozor? Oh, I owe Paul so, so much, man. Talk about taking a chance on some loudmouth whippersnapper. Like, <laughs> it was crazy, man. I The way I met Paul was, frankly, nuts. Um, I was working in college on this. I tried to form an LLC when I was in college. And I was making pitches to the city to try and get funding for our game. And the, the city had these cool, like, small business meetings and stuff, whatever. Somebody who knew Paul saw me at that event. And then invited me to this thing called the Hilton Head Island uh, conference or something, which was in, it's like near Savannah, Hilton Head Island. And they had this generational panel where I came and I was a speaker for the millennial generation. So they were having like a historical conversation. Like they had a Gen X guy, a baby boomer, and they're both like generational experts. Like they do like social studies professionally. And they just had me to represent millennials, which is already extremely flattering. Um, but anyway, I was there. Somebody who knew Paul saw me and messaged him like, hey, this kid wants to make games. You should totally talk to him. And Paul reached out to me and he worked on Metroid Prime, which is like, oh, my God, that's like gospel to me. And I've seen how many people you've spoken to on Metroid Prime, man. Like Metroid Prime 1, oh, that's a swan song. Like that's in my top five. So already I was starstruck talking to Paul. And um, over the summer, he was just like, yeah, like, frankly, we we need a tester. We need a uh, you know, probably someone at like an intern level to come and help with our production coordinator. And so I was, I was like, Oh shit, like no way. Like that would be awesome. Sorry. I don't know if you guys no, no, you can swear. It's all good. It's okay. All okay. Good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, I was like reading this to my mom and dad. I was, it was in 2016. So I was, I was going to enter my, my senior year of college. I think I was like 20, 21 or something. And my dad was like, you tell that man, we will drive you to Texas for that spot like if he has a spot for you you take that spot and i was like paul dude i'm open like uh if you need an intern i'm your guy and he was like okay we'll see you in two weeks or something and my parents and i was you know heads blowing off and i was like holy shit like i'm doing it man you know told all my game design friends at school and like that was it like it was i was doing it and the joy that i had living in my own apartment paying month to month rent in austin texas which was brutal i mean i lost money right like they're doing that opportunity totally lost money not that paul didn't pay me he paid me and he paid me well but <laughs> like it was an expense but it was an experience unlike anything i lived alone for three months i commuted every day and walking into a game studio was just a joy i had always dreamed and it was awesome and paul was a great mentor uh, i worked with um, an artist an engineer and another modeler and like the five of us it was like this band of brothers, man, we'd go and walk around the parking lot, take a break, like stand up, stretch our legs. It was a dream come true. It was a little office, like, um, and just the community that they had built out of those five guys working on that game, man, it was, 
I mean, I was starstruck the whole time from beginning to end. I was like, I'm doing it. I'm doing the dream that I had always thought of. I was like, I want to be a game designer. Here I am. And I was still doing like QA stuff. But what I loved about that experience was like, I could walk into the boss's office. You know, he was literally the next office over and just give him a suggestion. And then you'd be like, hmm, I'll think about that. And he'd come back and be like, okay, I did it. I liked your idea. Like, I don't get to, I didn't get to do that really at Treyarch necessarily. Not, not that Mark Gordon and Dan Bunting didn't have an open door policy, which they often did, but it's different, you know, like it's just, cool. it was very different to have that level of intimacy in game development. And I hope I can get that again someday, but Paul was great. His team was great. I learned a lot, grew a ton. Uh, yeah, it was awesome, man. It's fantastic. Did you pick his brain about Metroid Prime Two and Three when you were? You know, there? I always I tried to like reel it in <laughs> a little bit. I definitely asked him as much as I could. I think Paul primarily worked on two and three. I don't think he worked on one. No, he uh, he was on two and three. Yeah. Yeah. So I I mean even that I was like he could have been in the same building and I still would have picked his brain. So yeah, I think I definitely did. But it was definitely a balancing act where I'm like, okay, I need to not harass him. Like I can I can ask him and be giddy and excited about it, but I need to like find a balancing act for this for sure so it was fun mm. well hey i'll uh wrap up there uh i just want to thank you so much for taking time out after a long day's work but um <laughs> i'm looking forward to seeing what else you end up working on over the years because obviously you're still early in your career yeah yeah and you've already getting started yeah and you've already worked on probably one of the biggest franchises of all time so yeah. good look on the resume for sure Thank you. Yes, it it is. It's a gorgeous look on the resume, and one I am deeply grateful for, for sure, and stoked to see what else I can slap on there as well. Yeah. Maybe one day I'll see your name on a Dead Space or a Metroid Prime 7 or something. I don't know. Oh, but, um... I got big dreams, Reese. You'll see me on some stage. That's Good. that's the vision, man. I want to be the one walking out on stage presenting a trailer. That's That's the goal. Someday you'll see it. I promise you. Look forward to it. We can refer back to this. That's right. So if anyone wants to follow you or keep up to date with what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? LinkedIn, for sure. In a professional capacity, absolutely. I'm, I'm a total nerd goofball on Instagram. No, one's, no one needs to see that. But uh, LinkedIn, absolutely. I'm pretty active. I like to talk to devs and stuff and post cool articles, cool trailers and things. So yeah, just Jack Burroughs on LinkedIn. You'll find me. Cool. I do have to um, give a shout out to your interview with Tyvek. Um, which is a cool uh, interview that I recommend to any game developer that's that's either studying or wants to study. It's uh yeah very uh, very inspiring. So awesome, that's yeah. good. No, Ty, Ty was my roommate for three years in college. He's still one of my best friends. I talk to him every week, and just outright one of the best designers I've ever met. Like a brilliant dude. Uh, Sucker Punch is lucky to have him. He's a yeah. good guy. He's jacked, man. He's a he jacked is. dude. <laughs> His bicep is bigger than my head, honestly. <laughs> yeah, he gets up at 5 a.m., goes to the gym. That is a man of discipline, if there ever was one. I'll tell you that. <laughs> All right, well, that is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe. And have a good Christmas. See ya. See ya.